I'm Michael Geary, and this is the EU History Podcast. On this episode, we deep dive into the world of neoliberal thinkers and their influence on the European integration process of the 1980s and early 1990s. And who better to discuss this with than Dr. Roberto Ventresca, a Jean Monnet Fellow at the Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies at my alma mater, the wonderful European University Institute in Florence. Roberto, welcome to the EU History Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for inviting me. Great to have you here to discuss your, your wonderful research, which relatively recently appeared, I think, although the way that publishing works nowadays, uh, one, one submits something and then maybe two or three years by the time it gets through the various uh, processes of peer review, it's finally out. But your wonderful article that appeared in 2022 in the Journal of Contemporary European History, focusing on, as I said, neoliberal thinking and European integration in the 1980s. But first, let me just, just ask you, what ignited your interest in the relationship between neoliberals and neoliberal thinkers and the process of integration? Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, uh, the question. Basically, what ignited my interest in this topic uh, dated back to what happened uh, after the 2007-2008 great financial crisis, uh, which then turned into the European debt crisis. Uh, so at the time, you will remember that many policymakers, uh, journalists, uh, columnists, political activists uh, maintained that the uh, European Union was a sort of neoliberal byproduct or the byproduct of a long-term process of neoliberalization. So my question was, is it true? Uh, to what extent is it true? And how to historicize the relationship between a school of thought, uh, such as neoliberalism, and a political project, such as uh, European Economic Community, then European Union. So my interest started from uh, what was happening in my current life. I was a student uh, at that time, and so I wondered whether to uh, uh, deepen this topic uh, in historiographic terms. It is not my first, uh, in a sense, uh, topic I dealt with uh, during my, let's say, career. Uh, while my first uh, PhD topic was on Marshall Plan and the, the organization of European Economic Community, but my interest about the 1970s, 1980s, uh, and historical relationship between neoliberalism and European uh, integration was there. Uh, and then I spent a couple of postdoctoral fellowships uh, in uh, dealing with this, in my opinion, fascinating argument uh, and topic. So that's the story. I guess there's nothing like a crisis to to ignite your interest in the topic, right? <laughs> yeah, I have exactly. had a number of students who have also been quite obsessed with crises, not least the sovereign debt crisis, and now the pandemic. And now, of course, we have another crisis in, in Ukraine. So it's certainly going to generate a lot more a lot more research. There is a long history of these transnational actors trying to shape policy outcomes within the European community and the European Union post-Maastricht. But in your case, you focus very particularly on a society of neoliberal thinkers, and if I, I hope I pronounced this right, the Mont uh, Pelerian Society, the MPS. What what led you to focus particularly on them, and and what is so what is so interesting about this particular society? Uh, well, uh, as you know, the MPS, the Mont Pelerian Society, was founded in 1947. Uh, um, among the founders, we have Hayek uh, and many other uh, members uh, of the transnational neoliberal school uh, of thought, which came out. Uh, 
uh, are from the interwar period uh, and from the uh, Walter Lippmann colloque, uh, which uh, took place in 1938 in Paris. But basically, uh, in 2017-2018, I was carrying out a research at the Luigi Naudi Foundation in Turin, uh, which focused on the, again, relationship between neoliberalism and European integration, with a particular, particular emphasis on the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a UK-based think tank established in 1955, uh, and the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs primary sources are held at the Stanford-based uh, Hoover Institution Library and Archives, uh, which also collects the primary sources concerning the MPS, uh, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and so on and so forth. And while I was working on the uh, IEA papers, I realized how uh, deeply they were connected with the MPS, which uh, was and still is, uh, in many respects, the largest uh, transnational hub uh, of, intele- of neoliberal intellectuals, uh, academics, economists, uh, and so on and so forth. So, uh, my interest uh, uh, originates from the recognition uh, of the role uh, that the MPS played for the global uh, uh, and transnational neoliberal community from the very beginning of its uh, uh, history. Uh, and uh, this is more or less why I decided to uh, deepen uh, and delve into the very history of the uh, Montpellier Society and its commitment to the history of European integration. Was this commitment to European integration, was this part of their founding charter in 1947? Or does this become something that they become more acutely interested in as the process of integration starts to emerge in the 50s thereafter? Well, they uh, debated uh, about European Federation, for example, since the very beginning, since the very uh, first meeting of the MPS uh, in 1947. But Hayek himself uh, committed to the analysis uh, of uh, European uh, federalist uh, and or uh, allegedly federalist uh, evolution since the interwar period. So the issue of Europe was at the very center stage of the MPS interest from, from the very beginning. But of course, their relationship uh, uh, with the uh, European construction or so-called European construction changed and varied over time and over decades. And in, in your work, you focus in particularly on two meetings, which we will focus on, but and they really cover the beginning of the 80s and the early 1990s. As we start the 1980s, it is an incredibly important decade. There's so much happening. Margaret Thatcher comes to power in 79. Ronald Reagan comes to power in America. You have uh, Greece joined the European community in 81, the Spain and Portugal join in 86. Are we witnessing then, as we witness this kind of revival of the integration process, or at least the heightened activity, we also see then Delors coming to Brussels in the mid-80s. We have François Mitterrand becoming French president. And there is somewhat of a tension, I think, in terms of the, the rise of neoliberalism. And uh, I, I don't want to say the rise of socialism, but certainly a more socially oriented um, political sway in France, did the arrival of Thatcher and Reagan give these members of the MPS, these neoliberal thinkers, hope that the European integration process in the 80s would take on, well, some kind of a neoliberal turn? Or does that hope then fade with the arrival of Mitterrand in France? Uh, Well, I would say that uh, in my opinion, it would be hard to maintain that neoliberals, because of the emergence of Thatcher's uh, and Reagan's uh, experiences uh, in the UK and the US uh, believed, really believed that the European integration process will turn uh, into a proper neoliberal oriented uh, project. Uh, or will take some uh, more pronounced free market oriented uh, policies exactly because uh, of what you said uh, in the early 1980s uh, the Western European policies uh, were very fragmented uh, in a sense we have a sort of socialist uh, socialist experiment in France with Mitterrand uh, we have a center left experiment in Italy with the five party system the Pentapartito but we also had 
the conservative turn in Germany uh, uh, with Kohl, uh, and of course we have Thatcher uh, in the uh, in the UK. You uh, you know better than me how far and how problematic were the relationship between, for example, uh, the UK, the uh, EC, and the US in terms of economic uh, and monetary monetary relations, especially after the Volcker shock in 1979 uh, and the uh, currency policies and monetary policies adopted by uh, Reagan and Reaganomics uh, in general. At the same time, uh, neoliberals tended to look at the law experience as socialist or somehow socialist oriented. You uh, consider, you will consider that the mm, law political background rooted uh, in its Christian social socialist and Christian uh, oriented political experience. Uh, he was part of the uh, Mitterrand cabinet, uh, of course, and neoliberals still tended to look at the law uh, as an, uh, a representative of that broader socialist uh, world and European socialist tradition. Uh, so in my opinion, the emergence of Thatcher uh, and Reagan uh, did not represent a real element of persuasion, in a sense, for MPS neoliberals as far as the neoliberalization of the European economic community was concerned. And then the first of these, I suppose, big meetings that you focus yeah. on that has got a connection to the integration processes in 1982. But by then, in terms of the neoliberal thinkers' dream about where European integration would go, how did they view European integration up to 1982 and this first kind of important meeting that you look at? Do they see it as a, as a disappointment? Do they see it as an opportunity? Do they see the integration process up until then simply as a socialist construct? Or is there some hope that a, a neoliberal Europe will emerge? Oh, well, uh, the 1982 meeting, uh, which was generally titled uh, For a Free Society in the Coming Decade, uh, dedicated a specific panel uh, to European integration, which was uh, titled again, the European Economic Community, Friend or Foe of the Market Economy? Question mark. Um, and uh, among the speakers, we have Milton Friedman, Victoria Curzon Price, Robert Lozada Heller. Uh, their general uh, feelings uh, were uh, not very sympathetic, for sure, uh, with the process of European integration. For example, Milton Friedman considered the EC trade policies as an obstacle to the setting up of a truly worldwide trade order, uh, while Victoria Curzon Price, for example, uh, deeply criticized the European economic community attempt to set up some sort of social harmonization policies, uh, since according to her, this would finally turn Western European economies into the uh, vortex of planning, uh, quoting from Repke. But Lozada Heller, uh, who re reflected on Mitterrand's experience, uh, again criticized uh, the uh, European Economic Community policies and Mitterrand policies uh, as well, because in their opinion, uh, the economic planning, uh, state-led planning, as it was pursued by Mitterrand cabinet, uh, would, of course, uh, lead European economic community into disaster. But quite paradoxically, for example, uh, Lozada Heller considered Mitterrand's experience very fruitful, in a sense, because uh, its failure, in his opinion, uh, would have opened uh, the eyes to uh, Western European policymakers and citizens uh, about the uh, uh, impossibility to uh, uh, still uh, support socialist or leftist-oriented uh, economic and political experiences. So they, their hope about the uh, emergence of a neoliberal Europe uh, at the uh, early in the early 1980s uh, was, uh, in my opinion, poor. Uh, even because we know that uh, this was the period, uh, just that meeting happened just in the aftermath of the establishment of the European monetary system, which was the European response 
to the turmoil uh, brought about the collapse of the Bretton Woods war order. And we do, we do know that the uh, European monitor system, uh, uh, both technically and politically, was quite far uh, from uh, neoliberals' view on how to manage and run monetary policies at the international level. Because, of course, you do see this contradiction politically, I suppose, at the member state level between Thatcher's national or privatization and then what you see in France in the early 80s. Nationalization. A nationalization. And then so when you try to project this onto the European level, it's very hard to kind of even in 1982 to see where any of this will go. But I think what I really liked about your work is um, this tension you describe. And as I'm reading this, I find it fascinating that you obviously have these neoliberal thinkers who have a very particular worldview. And yet the world they're actually looking at, the world of the European integration process is quite complicated. Because as you describe, you talk about these, you know, the, the continuing existence of regulatory practices, the social Europe dimension. And then of course, on top of this, you have neoliberal thinking trying to influence uh, the way forward. Are neoliberals then somewhat deluded into thinking that a free market economy will emerge free of the constraints of these regulatory issues? Or do you think that they are more resigned to the fact that the European integration process may well take on neoliberal aspects, but there is also these other regulatory practices that are basically part of the fabric of the integration process? Thanks for this uh, very insightful question. I will say the second, uh, in a sense that uh, neoliberals were quite skeptical uh, about the uh, pro-market turn that, for example, the Delors Commission seemed to take after 1986-87, when the Single European Act uh, was uh, put into force. We do know the Single European Act uh, paved the way to what would be the uh, 1992 agenda and then the Maastricht Treaty uh, in 1992 again, uh, which was based upon the full liberalization, of course, of uh, services, goods, uh, capitals, uh, and people. In my opinion, neoliberals recognized how important was that regula regulatory tradition uh, that still existed, of course, uh, in Western Europe, that they somehow, uh, in my opinion, naively equated to socialism. Mm. Uh, they had this frame, uh, framework in mind. Uh, any regulator regulatory attempt uh, can be equated to socialism uh, or the like. Uh, and this is, in my opinion, uh, one of the most important uh, failing elements uh, in terms of uh, practical understanding of how uh, exactly European integration uh, was managed uh, at that time by, by uh, uh, from the point of view, of course, of the uh, of the neoliberal. Uh, so, uh, yeah, more or less, I do think that their hopes uh, again, uh, even in the uh, mid 1980s uh, and then the late 1990s, about the neoliberalization of the European integration pro process, were somehow uh, poor or at least limited. The second meeting you look at then comes at a time when the world has changed fundamentally. By the end of the 1980s, as you describe in your work, the Berlin Wall has fallen, the Cold War is coming to an end. Europe is changing. Does neoliberal thinking evolve then since that Berlin meeting in 1982? So do they do they see then a new Europe emerging that potentially might there where there would be less focus on these social tasks and these this kind of regulation and protectionism and greater constitutional and federalist aspects beginning to emerge? So do they see a new Europe beginning that might look like something of, of a of a neoliberal uh, tradition or agenda emerging after uh, the fall of the, the, the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War? Uh, well, for sure, uh, growing strands within the neoliberal community and the MPS in particular started to look uh, with new eyes, with a new approach, in a sense, to European, uh, uh, European integration. 
And this is, uh, of, co of course, dependent uh, on the uh, effects uh, that the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, caused uh, at the European and then international level, as well as the looming collapse uh, of the USSR and socialist bloc uh, also played a very crucial role in this new understanding of European integration from the point of view of neoliberals. But still we have uh, some uh, intellectuals who continued to consider the development of the European Economic Community and European integration itself uh, as a sort of byproduct of uh, constructivist designs, uh, which basically contradicted uh, the hope for the construction of an evolutionary competition frame, framework. Uh, I'm quoting here from the uh, Austro-Swedish uh, uh, philosopher Gerhard Radnitsky. Uh, while uh, on the other side, we have people like uh, Jatish Bagbati, a well-known uh, economist, who considered the EC trade policies uh, potentially uh, consistent with a neoliberal project of construction of a world economic order if such policies uh, demonstrated to be, again, consistent with what was uh, 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 debated uh, within the gap during the Uruguay round. So according to Baghdadi, for example, if uh, EEC policies were consistent with the main claims uh, that uh, were circulating uh, within the general agreement on tariffs and trade during the Uruguay round, then neoliberals uh, uh, would be able to consider the European integration uh, uh, process and the European economic community in general uh, as something that could be accepted somehow uh, uh, by, uh, by them. Uh, even if, and this is one of the uh, most circulating and recurring statements uh, that uh, uh, circulated within uh, the uh, uh, Munich uh, uh, meeting in 1990, uh, the European economic community was basically seen as a regional bloc. And the regional stance uh, of the community was, again, uh, one of the most uh, discussed uh, and uh, debated issue uh, in the eyes of neoliberals. Uh, but also we have people like James Buchanan, who looked at the 1990 happy coincidence uh, of the looming collapse, again, of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall as a, a great opportunity for Europe to build up a real federalist union, which somehow could mirror uh, the uh, uh, example embodied by the uh, United States. For sure, we can uh, retrace a sort of evolution uh, and change uh, of uh, the MPS affiliate's position towards the European Economic Community's project and the overall uh, 1992 uh, agenda as uh, it will finally emerge after the negotiation and the signing of the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. And on this issue, I suppose, because the, M the MPS has a wide membership, a, num a number of them, of course, are US-based economists, US-based neoliberal thinkers. And I wonder then how how far did they fully grasp what the integration process was about? Or perhaps they did, but they still pursued, obviously, a neoliberal agenda. Or put another way, like, did they see these kind of welfare elements inherent in the, integra in, in the integration process, like the common agricultural policy, as transitory, notwithstanding the importance that some member states placed on these kinds of policies? Because I wonder then, are these uh, MPS members more heavily influenced by the American economic model which is something they would like to see transplanted to Europe in the early 1990s. I will say that for sure, uh, most of the U.S.-based uh, academics, uh, academics and eco economists within the MPS grasped, yes, for sure, the very features uh, of the European Economic Community's evolution. Uh, but in my opinion, they failed to influence it first. And second, I'm not sure whether they uh, basically aimed at, to transplant, as you said, uh, the U.S. model uh, within uh, Europe, because, of course, they recognized uh, how strong and how rooted uh, were pre-existing 
uh, European economic cultures. Uh, just to uh, quote from the well-known uh, book uh, written by Laurent Warlusé, Globalizing Europe, uh, the so-called new mercantilist tradition, together with the social-oriented tradition, uh, worked uh, in parallel with the emergence of a new free market uh, emphasis, uh, which, for example, uh, in uh, the realm of competition policy, for, for sure, finally turned out, turned out to be hegemonic. Uh, but then, uh, uh, in the very end, uh, at least from the point of view of the US economists, in my, in my view, uh, the coexistence uh, of this very different and articulated economic models and culture represented the very uh, feature, the very uh, essence, if you will, of the European project. And this was very far, in my opinion, very different from what MPS neoliberal uh, economists and academics uh, uh, hoped for. Again, we we started earlier talking about you know the multitude of transnational actors within the European Community during this period and after, but also within the neoliberal world, you have the MPS, but you've also got the Bruges Group, which emerges yeah. in the early 1990s. And how do you see these two groups differing in terms of their end goal or their 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 agenda? Bruges Group uh, was established in the aftermath of the well-known. Margaret Thatcher uh, uh, speech uh, in 1990, uh, 1988. And for sure, one first thing that marked the difference between the MPS and the Bruce Group, for example, was the size. Uh, the MPS, of course, uh, uh, was established in 1947 and had decades in order to uh, uh, evolve uh, and emerge. And secondly, the MPS adopted a very large a spectrum of topic uh, which it dealt with, while the Bruges Group um, basically started in order to uh, address European issues. But soon it became the outspoken voice of British uh, Eurosceptics. So uh, notwithstanding, of, or probably because of its European commitment, that the Bruges Group, which was, of course, really uh, committed to the Margaret Thatcher uh, conservative party uh, and overall uh, um, economic and political program uh, became home for anti-European or Eurosceptic neoliberal and conservative uh, oriented uh, uh, people, policymakers, economists, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and a final thing, the Bruges Group was also linked to the already existing European uh, International pardon, Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, one of the first uh, leaders of the uh, Bruges Group was Lord Harris, uh, who had already played a a big role within the IEA and the broader conservative uh, circles uh, in the uh, in the UK. And I suppose on balance, and I know it's hard to measure or to, to try to assess impact, but on balance, you know, based on the research you've done, looking at this kind of long decade of the 1980s into the early 1990s, how would you rate in terms of success or otherwise the MPS's ability at injecting its views on policymakers and decision makers during this period? All in all, uh, I will say that the final impact of MPS views and influence on the way in which finally the European economic community emerged and evolved uh, towards the European Union was limited. Uh, the way in which the European economic community and the European integration process uh, in general uh, developed between the 1980s and the uh, 1990s was, in my opinion, uh, far from the model embodied uh, or uh, supported by MPS uh, neoliberals. Uh, for sure, was very far from somehow touchy uh, visions uh, of Europe and Notwithstanding this, we cannot 
overlook the fact that for sure neoliberal elements, neoliberal uh, features are now consistent uh, with the uh, European uh, project and for sure were included within the new European uh, uh, material constitution, I shall say, uh, as it emerged uh, after the Maastricht, the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, but such a neoliberal shape, in my opinion, was somehow different from what the majority of NPS intellectuals hoped for. If I had to define uh, the kind of neoliberalism that finally emerged within the European Economic Community, I have in mind this very uh, uh, famous uh, statement made by Pascal Ami, a former collaborator uh, of uh, Jacques Delors, who said at a certain point, if you want to liberalize, you must organize. So the connection between a strong juridical architecture within which free markets uh, can flourish and can flourish uh, as uh, market, uh, free market um, built upon the very primacy of competition. So this is basically the general framework which, in my opinion, drove uh, when which policymakers finally uh, uh, elaborated, in a sense, and set up uh, the uh, European Economic uh, Community and then European Union, uh, as we know now. Which is really fascinating because I think given the intellectual heavyweights that were part of the MPS during this period, you would have imagined that they would have left somewhat of a, or would have had a, a greater impact. But of course, it doesn't always work like that, right? Because, you know, there are other political forces at play that had, I suppose, deeper roots in, in policy and decision-making at the European level, not least in, in the period that you that you focus on. We could talk for hours on this really interesting strand of transnational activity vis-a-vis -vis the integration process in the 1980s early 1990s and for listeners eager to know more they can read Roberto's article on the subject in the Journal of Contemporary European History from last year. I ask each of my podcast guests a random question from the Proust questionnaire and Roberto here is yours. Which living person do you most admire? Oh my god. Uh, oh my god, this is a very uh, big question, excluding uh, policymakers, politicians, and so on and so forth. I should say my partner, Margarita, <laughs> uh, because notwithstanding, uh, despite me uh, and, and who I am, she still is uh, and does not run away uh, from home. So uh, this is the most, this is the living person that I, I appreciate the most. The Brilliant, most. I love it. Yeah, Roberta, Dr. Roberta Ventresca, Jean Monnet Fellow at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the EUI in Florence. Thank you for being my guest on this episode of the EU History Podcast. I'm Michael Geary. Thanks for listening.